Welcome to the White Bikini. My name is Marie White, and joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nick? It's good to be with you once again, Marie. Today is Monday, February 5th. 2024. And again, we're taping on a Monday. I think it's starting to become a pattern. We are talking today about some of the Oscar contenders that have connections to Philadelphia. I'm very excited about this. I know you've discussed this idea with me for the last couple of weeks. So let's get into it. Today, we are discussing Bradley Cooper's movie Maestro. I thought it was brilliant. I'd like to know what you thought, Nicholas. So it's hard for me to like break complete disbelief when I do these biopics. Um, and that's just me. It's, it's not necessarily anything wrong with the movies. First of all, I thought the makeup, uh, let's just start from the superficiality and work to the more substantive elements. I thought the makeup was really great. I thought he looked like a convincing Leonard Bernstein. I thought Kara Mulligan was great. I think she captured the spirit not only of Bernstein's wife, but captured the spirit of women of that era. Just, I mean, what do you think, for instance, like just the, her accent, the, the way she spoke? I think she was brilliant. And I think she did exactly what you said, captured women of that era. Because now that Fox show that's popular right now called The Swans, it's that, and I have to be honest, it's my mother's generation, those women that were in their late 30s, mid 40s, approaching 50, that elegance that doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. She was perfect. I thought, yeah, I definitely thought she was great. So those those were the two noteworthy elements. Um, I thought it was interesting how they explored Leonard's uh, sexuality. What are your thoughts on that? I, I thought I enjoyed the movie. I did think Bradley Cooper was perfect. I thought we could have done him a little more justice to who he was philanthropically and more of his career. But I really thought Bradley did a great job, but it was, a, it, I don't consider myself a prude, but it got, I thought it got a little seedy. Explain. I don't know. Like when he was upstairs in the townhouse in New York and his wife catches him kissing another younger man. And she did say to him, you know, you're getting sloppy now. And that's always the key is that you're starting to embarrass your family. Actually, you know, can we delve into that a little bit? Let's talk about the mindset of men of that era. Granted, men cheating is not a unique phenomenon. Uh, Leonard Bernstein is not unknowledged unto himself. But let's talk about the mentality of that era where a bisexual man or homosexual man, it's hard to tell because you didn't really have many options at that during that era, having these illicit affairs. Can you speak to your impressions of what what the story was behind those encounters. Well, I think, well, first of all, we have to properly state, uh, Brad, excuse me, Leonard Bernstein's wife was Felisa Montalegro. She was born in Costa Rica. She came from a famous family in Costa Rica. She brought the money to the table. Which is something I didn't know. Yes, she came from a very well-to-do family. She was, I think she knew who Leonard Bernstein was when she married him. And I do think that women, and you and I've talked about this for decades, when women are looking to build a family, they tolerate a lot. Agreed. When they have what they need from that family, the provider of that family starts to change in the dynamic of what he's bringing to the table. And I do think that at a time, Leonard Bernstein brought everything she needed until he started to get sloppy and embarrass the family. 
And could you speak to what you believe she wanted from Leonard Bernstein? To not sleep with men anymore. No, in terms of uh, the goods that he brought to the table, was it the renown? Was it the talent? Was it his charm? I mean, speak to that. Well, when they first met, I don't think he had all of that. Agreed. You know, as the movie told us, he kind of was brought up as a conductor only because someone got the flu. So when he stepped into that part, it did springboard him to a whole other life. I think women, I think speaking of Felicia, I think I think they started out as a very happy unit. I think like everyone does. And then there are, you know, fractures in the relationship because right now I am listening to his daughter, uh, his daughter, Jamie Bernstein's book, Growing Up Bernstein. And what's interesting in that dynamic is the chapter I just listened to was called The Shadows. In 1960, they were best friends with Jackie and John Kennedy. So it seemed that the Kennedy assassination was kind of that first little problem in the marriage in terms of, you and I have talked about that, that generation lived in a bubble until Kennedy's assassination. Agreed. So it kind of, their marriage started to get a little shakier because I think, I think women mature greatly from men, if a woman's 38 and her husband's 38, in the maturity level, women are already approaching 50. I'd agree. Men, men are still 30. I absolutely agree with that. So I think what she found charming about him as a young girl was not what she found charming as a mature grown woman. And mother. Mother. And I think it started to, again, affect their marriage when obviously, you know, in a party, he's caught kissing a younger man. But I thought it was very interesting that I felt like everyone defended Leonard Bernstein, A, because he was a man and B, because he was brilliant. I would agree with that. Can we take a more meta perspective and let's talk about the idea of a leading man like Bradley Cooper having an on-scene same-sex kiss. I mean, are, are we past that? Oh, I'm so past that. Are we as a society past that, though? I've never... I. If Will and Grace didn't get you past it, then something's wrong. Do you think... Did you care? No, I didn't care. But you know what? We Can we agree that they're still leading men? Granted, these men are now in their late 50s, early 60s, that we presume to be homosexuals. And they have maintained a facade of having heterosexual relationships. George Clooney. <clears throat> well, you can name the names. Uh, but the point being is that clearly it's still a taboo. Granted, it might be a taboo of an older generation. Bradley Cooper is, what, late 40s? Yeah, 48, 49, somewhere around there. Um, so the perspective, the lived experience, the social pressures might be different than a man who is knocking on 60. Can you talk to me about your impressions of, of that that dichotomy? In terms of the gay kiss? Well, or? in terms of homosexual representation on screen, because it's, it's more than just the moment. It's about what the moment signifies. Let me just say that anyone that would care about that type of moment is probably not watching Maestro. I think I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. I've mentioned Maestro to so many people of my era. They're like, what's that? I'm like, how do you not know? Leonard Bernstein is, yeah. And, and to be honest, it was more that they they didn't know about the movie. And I think that's what led me, along with this has a connection to Philadelphia, because everything we do is Philly-based. 
I guess it bothered me that I was like, I'm not going to become that person that's not open to new movies and new ideals. I don't have to agree with them, but I want to be aware of them. I think the audience for Maestro doesn't care about any um, conventional living. That's not their audience. Okay. So I, I've never heard any backlash about anything homosexual regarding or bisexuality. And I thought it was almost a little overplayed. I don't, and this is my lack of knowledge, I don't really know what prompted Bradley Cooper to dig so much into his sexuality, but maybe that was part of, you know, wherever he got his information or what drove him to do it. As I said, I thought it was a little over the top. I didn't think it was necessary, but I wasn't offended by it. I thought more from an artistic standpoint, I didn't need it. Well, to my impression, at least, it was more a matter of telling a story that a lot of people would feel uncomfortable telling, meaning that I think we still have an attitude with the boomer generation in Hollywood who still believe that it's something, it's a perspective best not shared, that they're protecting, and I'm doing air quotes here, they're protecting the legacy of Leonard Bernstein by scrubbing that aspect of his life from people's awareness. But to me, it seems like at the end of the movie, he was living as an openly gay man. He was. After his wife passed away. Right, right. he was, he was. But I, I still think we're at a weird inflection point, and this is a discussion we've had before the previous podcast. It's that we're at this weird inflection point where you have the attitudes of the traditionalists, the baby boomers and the older generation who feel who are fighting to hold on to a past that probably never was, but they're trying to maintain that they, they, they feel that society is moved far enough and they want to stop everything. And yet on the other side, you have the millennials, you have the Gen Zers, the Gen Ayers, and even the Gen Xers who were fighting to keep pushing the envelope, you know, inviting more people and more perspectives to the table. So, you know, there is that issue. I mean, we can't escape it. We are in the middle of an election here in the United States between- Michelle Obama? <laughs> Yay! Perhaps one day. Uh, an inflection point where we're at a crossroads between two very distinct ideologies for the future. And I think sometimes art reflects that which is taking place in the real world. I think we've perhaps um, drained that point. Um, what what other elements of this story were particularly captivating to you? My lack of appreciation of who he was and all of the work that he contributed to the oh, 20th God, century. His body of work is just outstanding. He was brilliant. Yes. The hair, all the hair was irritating me, but as I've read more about him and I'm reading the daughter's book, his hair was a big deal. That long kind of crappy hair that was all over the place was part of his signature look. I didn't appreciate it, but now I understand the why behind it. He was brilliant. I would have to agree with that. I think when you think about 20th century music, Leonard Bernstein or Bernstein, he is, he is to 20th century music what Albert Einstein represents to 20th century physics. I would, I would absolutely put Leonard Bernstein on that, on that level. Yeah, he's in the, to me like the top ten is in terms of music is a Paul Simon, a Paul McCartney, Leonard Bernstein. He, I'm going to go over quick facts because I didn't know a lot about this, and you probably missed it in the movie. They mentioned that he attended the Curtis Institute of Music. Yes, and we all know where that is. I didn't. Really? I was like, 
I'm calling myself. I was like, what's that? And I looked, I was like, oh, so that's what led me to this. Cause oh my there's goodness. another. Yeah. I didn't know that, but like, I didn't know. I mean, granted, um, you know, as a, as a factoid, but yeah, the Curtis Institute is right down there in, um, by old city, Philadelphia. Okay. Settle down. It's in your Patty's pub. Leonard Bernstein was born August 25th, 1918. And I also have a Gwyneth Paltrow connection that you're going to hate. He was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts. He died in New York, October 14th, 1990. He lived a pretty long life. I mean, for a heavy smoker, (laughs) for a heavy smoker, drinker. And now I am jump. This is like an ADD conversation. I really didn't like at the end when he was dancing with that guy to shout. That really turned me off. He was too old. In the in the gay bar. Well, here here's the point I was trying to make, and, and like I said, I, I'm trying not to go over the same talking points. But in the same way that you found that element of the story of his life to be, I don't know, um, unsatisfying, the representation of his sexuality in the minds of some might represent that same kind of distaste. Does that make sense to you? Yes, and I'm not a prude, but I just didn't. I didn't think it was necessary, so maybe I am more of a prude than I realized. Okay, that, that's the only point I was trying to elucidate. Leonard Bernstein played piano from age 10. He attended Boston Latin School, Harvard University, and the, re- the renowned Curtis Institute of Music, Philadelphia, which he attended from 1939 to 1941. That's our Philly connection, mm-hmm. along with Bradley Cooper. The Curtis Institute of Music is a private conservatory in Philadelphia. It offers a performance diploma in a Bachelor of Music, Master of Music in Opera, and a Professional Studies Certificate in Opera. I didn't know this, but all students attend on full scholarship. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I I did recognize it. It is a pretty uh, prestigious institution. His best known works are the musicals On the Town, Wonderful Town, Candide, and of course, the peak of, I think, his career was West Side Story. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But in the book, according to his daughter, he did not like the movie, he did not like the way the movie presented his music, and he was deeply disappointed. That sounds a bit like Stephen King. So it's interesting how artists perceive their music and what it turns out to be. (laughs) Especially when you have conflicting art, artistic impressions. You have the musical creator, but you also have the director, the movie director, the film director, the stage director. And art is, once you're at that level, it becomes a battle of wills. It becomes a battle of ego. So I, it's, I can understand why he would feel a certain degree of antipathy towards the way his art was represented. And I never knew this either. He composed the music for the film All the Waterfront in 1954, for which he received an Academy Award nomination. Okay, I didn't know that factoid either. So he was, you know what, he was a Renaissance man. He really was. He was a remarkable talent, remarkable energy. The one thing I, maybe you could speak to this, like what were his politics like? I don't know. He, Go ahead. He was as left as you could get. That's, that's what I, I felt that way, but I'm not sure that I, I that part was clear to me. He and Felisa were very left. They grew, the book Growing Up Bernstein is fascinating, but you know, at the time, this is very late 60s, very, you know, maybe early 60s, mid to late 70s. Lillian Hellman was a guest at their house, Mike Nichols. So it was that whole New York era of very, very brilliant people, but they were very, very left-leaning and also because of his Jewish background. Right. You know, 
for what they went through, it part of the book was so interesting because his he had it, you know, back then people had tailors that came to their house. No one does that anymore. But he also employed for years a tailor that had survived Auschwitz. And I feel like it's that generation that you and I talk about, even though we're getting away from the Philadelphia connection, that's fine. That people like, and I'm going to say like my aunt, my aunt was friends with very... I'm not going to brag, but I'm going to brag. People that were related to the Drexels. That era also employed, for good and bad, people locally. In terms of they they had, they had needed a lot of help on their houses. They did employ people. There was that level of um, generosity, caring, and empathy that I, I think we're somewhat lacking in today's society. You cared about someone that lived in your neighborhood and how they were living, if, you know, if that makes sense. Naturally, you naturally care more about the people that are close to you than the people who are far away. You know, and they always say charity begins at home, and I do believe that. I would absolutely agree with that. What was the most riveting part of the movie for you? I think when he, well, there was a couple of them, but I definitely liked when he was doing the conducting in that church-like, in the white tails. That, to me, was so beautiful. And I'm not... This is embarrassing to me, and I was raised in a better generation, and I don't have a lot of, um, I didn't grow up with a lot of interest in classical music. I was a rock and roll girl, and I regret not taking advantage, and I'm sure you do at times. We, even from a different generation in the 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of great shows that we could have seen that I did not pursue, whether it be Broadway, local you know, local in Philadelphia, that whole generation has just passed us by. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it just part of it is that your consciousness isn't wide enough, expansive enough to really appreciate the subtlety of these things that are not immediately in front of you. I think that's just what it means to be human. And I also want to jump a little to Bradley Cooper. I mean, he is born in Philadelphia. He was born on January 5th, 1975 in Abington Township near Philadelphia. He grew up in Jenkintown and Rydell. His mother worked at KYW, which I never knew. Oh, didn't know that. Yep, which was then a Philadelphia NBC affiliate. His father, Charles Cooper, worked as a stockbroker for Merrill Lynch. His father was of Irish descent. His mother is Italian. But again, it's someone that from our era, you know, our area that's, you see the photos, you know, Bradley Cooper's in every Eagles game. And I like that connection that there's someone that's coming back to Philly, just like a Charles Barkley. Bradley Cooper obviously is a Hollywood star, but I like that connection to Philadelphia. And I'm sure he could have overlooked that whole Curtis, you know, reference, but I bet he put it in there because he knew it was from Philadelphia. And I think like Bradley is always trying to elevate Philadelphia in the best way that he can for who he is now. Right. It brought me back to how beautiful this city really is and all of the opportunities we have or we've had over the last few decades that I think somehow, and let's let's call this what this is too, in fairness, this is a very white community issue. I'd agree. Well, yes, largely white, but it's more about wealth, access, and privilege, which is it almost has a one-to-one relationship with, you know, one's ethnicity. Yeah, I, and that's some of the problem. And I think that's where some, of, and, and rightly so, I think that somehow where all these great institutes of learning were very white privilege driven. And now they really don't have a place in Philadelphia anymore in terms of, you know, and rightly so, that we're so much more conscious about what's happening. And years ago, people didn't have a constant platform 
to talk about what they wanted to. And now that they do, which I think is great, there is though a level of chaos with so many messages coming at everyone on a daily basis. Here's the problem though. And this is a discussion I've had offline with several friends. You know, my, my experience working uh, briefly in film and television is that there was a system in place. You know, we I called it at least the gatekeepers. So in order to get to the next level, there were people in the industry, you know, granted that I'm speaking about local industry, who would determine whether or not they would hire you to perform a particular role, you know, especially if it's a, an elevated role from the role in which you were accustomed. And so you had these gatekeepers, for better or for worse, that were controlling how people moved up and down the career ladder. And in a world now where those gatekeepers are now irrelevant, what does that say for the messages that are broadcast to the general public where anyone with a smart device, be it a, a tablet, a phone, laptop, computer, what have you, and a Wi-Fi or internet connection of some sort, they literally have access to the connected world. And they didn't years ago. They were marginalized immediately. And I do believe everyone has a voice, but now I'm going to sound a little old fashioned, but I want us to talk about what brings us together than divides us. I think that is the path forward. I think cooperation is a much more efficient process than competition or malevolence. The idea that I have to get mine so that you can't get yours or take food off your table so I can have more on mine. I think you're right. I think it community, hospitality, caring, all those things are virtues that are the foundation of a healthy society and of a healthy Philadelphia because that's where our, our heart is. And this is so random, but I the other night I turned on a Hillary Clinton podcast and her last guest for the year was Bill Clinton. You can say what you want about Bill Clinton, but the one thing he said at the end, he said, I am an optimistic dreamer. And he said, I believe that we we have so much more that brings us together than what divides us. And I thought, you know, we don't have, except from, you know, since Obama, we don't have those I'm not moved anymore by our presidents. They look like old white men to me. They're not they're not inspiring us anymore. Right. And it's I think we it's funny. We need to be inspired. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I watched a uh, a um, video podcast of uh, Nikki Haley on the Breakfast Club. And it's interesting you mentioned Obama because from her perspective, America's ills began with Obama, the division of her country. And it's just, it's fascinating. And granted, I, you know, Nikki Haley, a discussion around her politics, and, and I won't digress into that, is almost an exploration of identity and self-delusion and just appealing to madness in order to self-aggrandize and achieve, you know, this idea. Anyway, like I said, I, I, I could probably spend an hour trying to deconstruct people like Nikki Haley were, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, and and others like that. But let's get back to the harmony. So this set me down a small rabbit hole. But since we're talking about the movie and the connection to Philadelphia, I started thinking my girlfriend Gwyneth Paltrow posted a photo of her mother, Blythe Thanner. And I had forgotten 
that Gwyneth Paltrow's mother, Blythe Danner, her father, excuse me, her grandfather was William Henrik Moaning Sr. Have you ever heard of them? No, I don't know that name. The Moanings rapidly gained the respect and confidence of musicians in the United States and their skills were in such demand among the Philadelphia Orchestra and the faculty and students of the Curtis Institute of Music. Her father owned, which I've never heard of, the world-famous Rittenhouse violin shop that remained in the family for nearly a hundred years. So again, here, Philadelphia, the Curtis Institute, you know that they were supplying such great things as the Philadelphia Orchestra, again, the Curtis Institute, and after the Second World War, they moved to the United States, and they have, they produced finest classic masterpieces of Italian, French, English, and German schools of violin and bow making, which I thought, you know, that's, it was kind of a rabbit hole, but it's Leonard Bernstein. It's talking about classical music. There's so many great things that were happening in Philadelphia in this era. I think it's hard for us to recognize, but there was a time when the part of culture in the United States was basically Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. That was it. And Philadelphia was a very, very important leg in, in that structure of American culture. Philadelphia was a very important place for many years. And even, you know, from our days at the retailer that we don't talk about, if I started there in 99, suddenly I was open to something that I've never heard of before, the Academy Ball in Philadelphia. Do you remember that? I don't remember that, no. The Academy Ball took place every year in January. I've never heard of it until I started to put makeup on for the women that were attending it. And though it was a great, great era, it stopped right around the pandemic because the younger generation was not interested in getting dressed up, putting on tuxes. It looked a little too whitewashed and the Academy of Ball doesn't exist anymore. But there was an era, if I started doing makeup in 99, Prince Charles was a guest. Rod Stewart was a guest. So there was all of this greatness. Not, I'm not diminishing the the racial aspect of it, but of more of kind of that sense of community that brought people together. That was the greatness of Philadelphia. I subscribe to the theory that you can have two, two or more things can be true at the same time. Expand. Well, the sense that you can have great cultural happenings. At the same time, you have these desperate um, circumstances that are based primarily among racial lines. You can have great art and great poverty. You have can have geniuses like Leonard Bernstein, and then you can have the depths of depravity for large populations of people through no fault of their own. And that's the history of Philadelphia. That's the history of this country. But is it okay? No. And I think younger generations are willing to step into the step into the floor and say no more this kind of schism this kind of world where you have a privileged few that have access to everything and then the masses who can barely survive that's not right that's not a healthy society that's not ethical i don't know that they'll sustain it because what ends up happening it's it's the it's the principle of capture theory you have these young people who have nothing other than what their parents provide them they have their ideals but once they get out into the real world they buy their first home you know they get their first nice car 
they get married, they have kids, you tend to be more conservative. You tend to worry about yourself and you tend to see others as potential threats. That's just human nature. So fortunately, there's all, there are always young people. There are, there's always another generation coming, coming up. I think what's different now is that with the millennials, and the Gen Zers is that they're a huge cohort in our overall population, our overall society. They represent a very significant amount of people. So what they say eventually will go to some degree or another. As you know, the Grammys were last night and it was kind of interesting that, you know, Jay-Z got up there. He, he to be honest, when's the last time you watched the Grammys? Many, many, many years. Jay-Z, I think he won some type of, you know, award, legacy award, and he got up there and he, and it was so weird to me. Beyonce didn't go up with him, which is fine. Their daughter, Blue Ivy, went up and he was gracious and thanked. He's like, but my wife has won every Grammy except best album. He said, you all better get it together. And when he said you all, he meant the white people that really run the music industry. And it was interesting because I had forgotten that when, Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff won for Parents Just Don't Understand. They were not at that time allowed to be on the show and play the song because people were so threatened by rap music. And I thought, oh my God, here it is 2024. I still remember, like I am, I still remember even after DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince won, there are still discussions that rap is a fad. It was about to go away any day now. Um, like EDM or, you know, any other, you know, the dance crazes that have come and gone. So it was, it wasn't that dramatic a, a statement, but I, I think this is a bit like our Barbie uh, discussion previously. I, I think there are a lot of people in this society who still believe that if you bring more diverse voices to the table, they lose. So whether it's the anti-woke, which is now become passe and it's now anti-DEI, you know, and before that still it was anti-BLM. The whole idea that when you bring non-white people, but specifically, specifically black people to the table, they lose, white people lose. And it's a very, very toxic truth in air quotes that they hold on to. And whether it is the Grammys, the Oscars, any number of institutions, the NFL, um, we're still having controversies about whether our black quarterbacks are have the, the biological capacity, the mental capacity to play. There's still people who are wedded to those beliefs and those people are still in dominant and relevant positions. And for me, the takeaway for the Grammys, because I'm trying to stay positive. Well, before we go there, do we agree that we liked Maestro? Yes, we do like it. And I, we think it is... It was well done and it was a story that was well told. And it really, really captured the specific era. Because I have to be honest, it was very sad after his wife passed away. You saw the kids all going in that station wagon jammed in the back, everything thrown in the back of the car. That's how we rolled in the 70s. I thought it was very sweet that no one sat up front there with his wife. Yeah. It was that craziness. My mother had the exact car. <laughs> We literally got thrown in the back. Even if there was room up front, you didn't sit up there. Everything you owned was jammed in that station wagon. And that's, they just, you know, that's how the 70s people rolled. They smoked and drove illegally. And of course, no seatbelts, of course. <laughs> 
Oh no, it was no seatbelts, it was fighting in the back. But back to the Grammys, because I want to end on a... I thought Maestro was brilliant. I don't know that he deserves the Oscar for Best Director, but I thought he inhabited Leonard Bernstein incredibly. And I do believe Philly bred Bradley Cooper is A, gorgeous, but B, I, I think he has what it takes to elevate, whether it be Hollywood or Philadelphia. I think he's going to be a change maker. I agree. Marie, who's our sponsor this week? It is the shops on Market Street. Have you gotten your hair cut for the spring yet? I'm already jumping ahead to spring because the groundhog's spring's coming early. The shop on Market Street is the daily local reader's choice best barber shop in Chester County. But Nick, we agree that it's really Montgomery County and Delaware County, correct? Southeastern Pennsylvania. You know what? The whole country. Amen is an authentic, spacious barbershop providing haircuts and styling for men and children, owned and operated by longtime barbers Ashley White, who we know personally, and Christina Hughes. Please book an appointment today and find out why girl barbers rule. Their address is 134 East Market Street, Westchester, PA. Phone number is 610 610- Five four five three seven three two. Please follow them on Instagram. You can do chats. You can book for all open appointments. But please support them. Nick, have you gotten your haircut this year? I have. Did you go there? No. Of course I have. I look fabulous. Did you say hi to Ashley for me? <laughs> I certainly did. Thank you for joining us today on the White Bikini. Please remember to subscribe to The White Bikini on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Are we pretty much everywhere in terms we of platforms all over now? The place. And most importantly, please follow us on Instagram at The White Bikini. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.